All right, for the last three Sundays, uh, not counting last week's home church, Jerry's been taking us through a study, and we have one more planned next week. He's been taking us through a study titled Jesus, Liar, Lunatic, Legend, or Lord. And uh, it's been a really good study so far. And like I said, we have one more to go. But what I want to do for today's resurrection-themed study is I want to focus on that same aspect as we look at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. If you want to join me, I'm going to start reading in the book of Acts, chapter 17. But before I read, let me kind of set this up in terms of what I want to accomplish today. Um, Every Easter, we focus on the resurrection, and many Sundays in between Easter's, we focus on the resurrection as we rightly should. It's one of the foundational events in all of human history in relationship to our faith and our following of the Lord. But there's one aspect of the resurrection that commonly gets maybe like uh, secondary attention. But it really is super important, and it's one of the most, most critical elements of what was accomplished when Jesus actually did rise from the dead. And just to be clear, I'm not going to be focused this morning on the facts of the resurrection in the sense of the historical event itself that Sunday morning 2,000 years ago. I'm trusting that you all believe that Jesus actually, that stone was rolled away. He actually came out of the tomb and he presented himself alive to his disciples over the course of the next 40 days and then ascended back to heaven where he sits upon the throne of God ruling over all things and is waiting for that day in the future unknown to us where he will return to this world and take as much of a complete charge and control of this world as he displays fully in heaven even this morning. So I'm not going to focus on all of that. I'm going to focus instead on one of the significant meanings of the resurrection, which is the resurrection as vindication of Christ. Now, the word vindicate is defined this way in the dictionary. It means to provide evidence or proof to substantiate a claim that has been made. And the claim that the scriptures make about Jesus and the claim he made about himself is that he is a unique human being in all of history. Like David was emphasizing earlier, no one else like him. And he, and he alone, is revealed to be in his life, in his death, and especially his resurrection, the Son of God, the Savior, and the Lord. So what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at what are the proofs of that claim. Because anyone could theoretically, potentially claim, hey, I'm the greatest person that's ever lived in human history. And certainly there have been some, as Jerry described 
uh, in one of the categories of his study, some who could only rightly be seen as lunatics who do believe about themselves that they're the greatest person that's ever lived in history. But the Bible makes that claim about Jesus and he made that claim about himself. Not in some kind of weird, arrogant, proud way, hey, I'm the greatest, but in the way that you cannot deny the truth and it would be false for him to claim anything less about himself. But is there proof of it? And in what sense does the resurrection relate to that? All right, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna share seven ways in which the resurrection proves conclusively that Jesus is unique among all human beings. There are seven times we're, we're studying through the book of Acts um, and we'll get back to that study uh, when Jerry's finished with his, his mini-series. We're studying through the book of Acts chapter by chapter, passage by passage. And I had mentioned in the introduction to the book of Acts uh, here some time back that there are seven places in the book of Acts, seven places only, where it is specifically declared that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, Jesus was capable as the son of God of raising himself from the dead, but he intentionally in the whole event of his crucifixion, his death and his burial placed himself in a passive mode. He had to or else he could not have been executed in the way that he was and buried in the way that he was. But God the Father raised his son from the dead and he did so as a vindication. He did so as an evidence, an irrefutable proof that Jesus is the unique one in all of history. So let's start in Acts 17 and look at the first reason why the resurrection serves as a critically important evidence. I'll just read the first three verses. Now, when they had passed through, and this is describing an apostolic missionary team led by the Apostle Paul. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, these are regions in what is modern-day Greece, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, meaning in his missionary journeys, Paul had a strategy, and his strategy was in each city of the Roman Empire, he first sought out the synagogue because it was in that location that there would be people living there that were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. And he, he didn't rely only on this strategy, but it was a inroad into the city to start with the people that were most familiar with the scriptures and then to do what the next verse describes, prove using the scriptures And of course, for them, the scriptures weren't the fullness of what we have today. None of the New Testament scriptures had been written yet. But at this point, we have all of the Old Testament scriptures, and that's what Paul is working with here. And it says that Paul went in in verse 3, or verse 2, excuse me, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, meaning three weeks in a row, he showed up at the synagogue, and three weeks in a row, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Meaning he opened up the scroll of certain Old Testament books. We're not told which specific ones he used here, 
We can kind of figure that out by reading the letters that Paul wrote to the churches later, which passages from the Old Testament he preferred to use in this kind of argumentation. But what he did was he logically worked out in the minds and hearts of his hearers the truth, the proof, the evidence, the vindication of Christ from what the scriptures had said about him in advance, hundreds of years before he came. Verse 3, explaining and proving, again, from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Now, the Christ is a special title. It is a name, but it's not his born name. Do you understand that? In other words, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it wasn't that he was born to the family of Joseph and Mary Christ. The word Christ literally translates, it's a Greek word, it translates the anointed one. And what that means is God did something special in relationship to pouring out something upon him that he had done to no other human being in all of history before that and since that. And in the Hebrew language, it's the same concept, the same word as the Messiah. And so what Paul did was he explained to them and he reasoned to them from the Old Testament prophetic passages, looking forward in advance to history before it was written. And he proved to them, he provided vindicating evidence to them that the Messiah must die a saving and sacrificial death and that he must then rise again from the dead. Paul's point is, if Jesus had not risen from the dead, he could not be identified as the Messiah, nor could anyone else ever truly be rightly identified as the Messiah unless they were able to prove their anointing, their special and unique anointing, by rising again from the dead. Something, as David emphasized this morning, no one else in history had ever done, and even to this day, no one else has done. It's unique to him and to him alone. Now, the next passage, let's look in the book of Psalms. Psalm 16. And this is from one of the, most of you are familiar, the Psalms are really songs. All we have here are the lyrics of the songs. We don't know the tune because the lyrics are more significant than the tune. God preserved the lyrics for us. These are specially inspired songs of worship. And in these songs of worship, there's 150 of them total, there are a handful that rise in significance even above the others. And these have become known in theology as what we call now messianic psalms. Meaning that all of these songs are written to help us in our understanding of what it truly means to walk with the Lord and have a saving relationship with him. But some of them highlight in advance, again, 
history being described and declared before it actually happens in a prophetic way, describing the work of God in the life and experience of the Messiah. Psalm 16 is one of those messianic psalms. I don't have time to read the whole thing. It's all uh, related to Jesus and what God would accomplish in him and with him. But I want us to focus on verse 9 and 10. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Now, Sheol was a, a Hebrew concept of what we would call the unseen realm, the place where people go when they die. Their body remains seen in this world and is buried, and the soul, the, the essence of the person themselves, leaves that body and doesn't cease to exist. It just goes somewhere else other than that body. And how did they describe where it went? It would go to the unseen realm. And here, what David, the great king of Israel, was declaring as he was writing this worship song under the inspiration of the Spirit. And as he's writing it, he's writing it from a first-person perspective as if this is his experience. But later, and we studied this in detail in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost when Peter was proclaiming the gospel for the very first time after having just been filled with the Holy Spirit. He declared that when David spoke these words, he was not speaking about himself because this could not be David's experience. He was speaking dramatically as if he were in the sandals, so to speak, of the Messiah. He's really describing the Messiah's experience who would be the son of David, descended from the line of King David. And he says in this, in verse 10, for you will not, this is speaking to God the Father, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now on the day of Pentecost, as Peter referenced this passage from the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, he said it was fulfilled when Jesus rose from the dead. God did not leave his soul in the unseen realm like every other person who has ever died in all of history has remained in the unseen realm. Everybody in the world has their own ideas about what happens when your heart beats that one last time, when you draw that last breath in this world and then your body ceases to function. Your brain your brain shuts down, your body begins to deteriorate and to decay. And it's no longer animated as it is right now. And your soul, which inhabited that shell of a body, goes somewhere else. But it goes to the unseen realm. Here, what happened with Christ was his soul was not abandoned to that realm, and it was because he is the Holy One and would not see corruption. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But here, what Peter declares is that the resurrection of Christ proves 
that God did not abandon Christ in the experience of death, even his sacrificial death on the cross. Now, why is that important? Because you might remember that on the day of his crucifixion, there were not just true followers surrounding the cross that were observing his, his death. There were all kinds of people from the city of Jerusalem that came out to see, because he was a famous person at this point. And the whole city of Jerusalem for the last week had been in an uproar because it was Passover week and he had come and he had entered into the city in a special way. There was a large multitude of people that had come out and had proclaimed him to be the fulfillment of Messianic prophecy. And then just a few days later, under the influence of of wicked men that were influencing the crowd, had convinced the crowd to deny him, to reject him, and to cry out to the Roman governor for his crucifixion. And as he was hanging upon the cross, many of them from the city mocked him while he was on the cross and specifically mocked him that God must have abandoned him to this death because it was the death of a criminal. So in the resurrection, God provides full and powerful evidence vindicating evidence and proof that he never abandoned Jesus and that he truly was the Holy One. Now this third reason leads directly to that. The resurrection also proves the perfect holiness of Christ. We make a claim about Jesus and it's a theologically critically important claim. The claim is this for true believers. We believe that in the entire time of his life in this world, all 33 years of his life leading up to the moment of his crucifixion and including every moment on the cross, even to his last breath before his death and burial, that Jesus never once sinned against God. Now, if that claim is true, that would place him in a unique category because of course, the scripture declares, and it declares so in, in, in ways that should not be argued against, that every single one of us have fallen short of God's standards and sin. There's not a single one of us that can say, I am spiritually better off than you because I have lived a more righteous life than you. From God's perspective, if you cross any one of his lines, you've crossed and this is, this is hard to swallow, but it's the truth of what God reveals and declares. If you've crossed any one of God's lines, you've crossed all of the lines. Because the, the standards of God's holiness are right and righteousness are represented in the law, and the law is a unified representation of God's righteousness. To fail, as the, the apostle James later said, to fail in any one point is to fail in every point. Because the whole point of the law is to prove to us that we are sinners and that we have fallen short and that we have failed and therefore our only hope is in a savior. But that savior, in order to qualify as a truly saving savior, not just someone making claims, but someone capable of actually saving, that savior had to live sinless at every point that we lived sinful. 
he had to have never crossed the line of God's righteousness and holiness. And so let's read Acts 13 in which that claim is connected with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Acts 13. I'll start reading in verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as it is As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son today, I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. And here he quotes from Psalm 16, which we just a moment ago read. These two things are connected Why was Jesus the only one to ever be raised from the dead? Because he's the only one that never sinned in his life in this world. And in that sense, Peter declares in another place, the grave was not able to hold him. The the grave was not able to keep its grip on him because there was no sin involved in his life. The fourth reason for the resurrection being the vindication of the Son of God is that it proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is a true prophet. Now, there have been in all of human history many, many people, not just the people in the Bible, there have been many people that claim to speak for God. And in a sense, I'm claiming to speak for God this morning as I represent the gospel to you. But the question is, how can we know for certain that this one is truly speaking for God? The ultimate proof of his qualification to speak as the ultimate spokesman for God is his resurrection. Let's look at Matthew chapter 17. Is anybody else getting warm and toasty? David, could we possibly, could we turn on the air? I'm starting to drip and I didn't bring a cloth with me, so. Matthew 17. I'll read just a couple of verses here. Verses 22 and 23. Thanks. This is Jesus in interaction with his disciples. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man, this is he's speaking to his disciples before he ever takes them to Jerusalem, before he is arrested, before he's put on trial, before he's falsely convicted, before he's marched out, carrying the cross beam of the cross and then nailed to it before he dies and is buried. Before all of that, this is what he says to his disciples. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And what he means by that is it's not a good thing in the sense of of he is going to be turned over to men that don't have his best interests at heart. And they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And of course, the disciples had an emotional reaction to that, as you and I would if we were listening to him that day, and they were greatly distressed. I'm not so much focused on their distress, I want to focus on this last statement he makes in verse 23. 
And he, speaking about himself in the third person now, he will be raised on the third day. Now, Jesus said those words to his disciples before any of that happened. What would have happened if he had never actually risen from the dead? We would have just said this guy was either a deceiver, meaning he knew it wouldn't happen and he said it anyway. That's the liar element of what Jerry was emphasizing in his study. Or he really believed that he was going to rise again from the dead, but he just couldn't pull it off. And then he would rightly be what we would identify as a lunatic, meaning he was tweaked. Hey, listen, if someone thinks I'm going to die, but after I die, just hang around, I'm coming back. If someone said that to you today, you would rightly know, you should rightly know, that person's tweaked. That person is not, you know, they're not functioning with a full bag of marbles. So which was it? The reality is the eventuality of his actual resurrection from the dead is the proof that he speaks as the ultimate spokesman of God. He is the prophet of God in all of history. Next, number five. Let's go back to Acts again, this time to chapter two. This is a passage that we studied in some detail together. I won't have time this morning to develop all the details, but I want to remind us of this. Acts chapter two, day of Pentecost, Peter's preaching to the to the gathered city of Jerusalem that day after the, the early church has now been filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'll start reading in verse 32 of Acts 2. This is where Peter is bringing his message that day, his, pro, his gospel proclamation to a, a, what we would call a grand finale, the big finish. Not in a manipulative kind of big finish way, but a big finish in terms of saving the most substantive and important information for the end of the message. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. They actually saw him. They touched him. They ate meals with him. All of which happened after he died on the cross and was buried for three days. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Now he's speaking about the ascension. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, he's speaking of Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, meaning their experience of being filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost was all because of the resurrection and ascension of Christ. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, again, two lords in in view here, God the Father as Lord, God the Son as Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. I just want to emphasize those three words. Know for certain. How many things in this life can you know for certain? How about the value of the home that you live in? Can you know for certain that what it is today will always be what it'll be? 
How about the value of your money in the bank account? Hopefully you have a bank account. Hopefully you have enough money to have a bank account. And if you do, can you know for certain that that value will remain constant or maybe increase? Can you know for certain even that the bank that you have it in will be in existence next month? Can you know for certain that as healthy as you might be this morning, you'll be that healthy tomorrow? There's just nothing in this world that you can know for certain except this. This you can know for certain. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What is the foundation of their ability to know this for certain? There's only one thing, only one thing counts and that is he did rise again from the dead. Otherwise, it's just a fantastic claim with no basis in reality. But he rose again from the dead so that we could know for certain that he is both Lord and Christ, the anointed one. Number six, turn with me to the book of Romans. Uh, This passage I'm going to read is, I'm going to read a short passage in Romans chapter four that is theologically dense, theologically complex, and theologically challenging. And uh, those of us that are studying through Martin Lloyd-Jones' teaching on Romans, meeting together once a month for the church book club, uh, when it came to this portion, I don't even remember how many weeks Lloyd-Jones spent on these few verses I'm going to to share. I will just tell you, I'm going to read through it, I'm going to make one single point from it, but understand, there's layers upon layers of significant and critical information here that I won't have time to touch on this morning. I'll start reading in verse 20. Chapter 4 of Romans. It's speaking here about Abraham and his experience of faith. It says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That promise was, even though... Abraham was too old to give birth to a child and his wife was too old to carry a child. Nevertheless, God promised that he would have a child from his own descent and God did fulfill that promise uh, through the avenue of what we would rightly identify as a miracle. Verse 22, then, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the, word, the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses. That's the cross and the meaning of the cross. He died for our sins. And raised for our justification. Now, we talk in our studies oftentimes, about justification by faith alone in the saving sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. And justification means that on the day of judgment, we'll stand before the throne of God 
And in spite of our multitude of personal failures, God, for us who believe, and only for us who believe, will evaluate our lives and will declare us at the end of that evaluation fully just in his sight. That means he will declare on the day of judgment about me that I am as righteous as Jesus. Not because I ever lived nearly as righteous as him, but simply because I believe that he was that righteous and that he died for me. But what's amazing in verse 25 is that here Paul links justification to the resurrection, not to the cross alone. And what that simply means, let me just boil it down and describe it this way. If I said to you, listen, believe that Jesus died for your sins and you will be saved, but let's just say Jesus did die on the cross and he did die for the sake of your sins, but never rose again from the dead. How could you know that you were truly covered on the day of judgment? He died. He's in the unseen realm. He never came back. How can I know for certain? I'm just like one of a multitude of people out there that are hoping against hope that it's true. But how can I know that it's true? I can't. But if he rose again from the dead, his resurrection is the proof that his death was a truly saving death. That's why justification on the final day, the day of judgment, is linked both to his death and to his resurrection. Here, his resurrection as the vindicating proof that he truly accomplished salvation when he died for us. All right, our final proof that's found in the resurrection, and this is my favorite Easter verse in the entire Bible. I've shared this in multiple Easter's prior to this, so this for many of you should just be a a good review, and for a few of you, this will be new information. Romans chapter 1. This verse doesn't mention Easter at all. You understand, right, that the word Easter is not found in the Bible? But it does mention the resurrection, which is what Easter is actually all about. I, I just assume, right, that you all understand in your heart of hearts that Easter's not really about bunnies and eggs and candy and, you know, Easter lunch and all of those things that are waiting for us. I mean, I, I enjoy all of those things. I'm going to have fun watching the kids hunt for Easter eggs. I'm not, I'm, not, uh, I'm not afraid of any of it. I'm not concerned about any of it as long as I rightly understand, and hopefully you do too, that this, what I'm about to read, is what Easter is really actually all about. Now, the portion I want to read is just a single verse, but I'll read, I'm going to explain just a single verse. I'll read up until that verse. So I'm going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 4. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. And then this declaration, this portion, this is, this is my favorite Easter declaration. Speaking about Jesus, it says, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. 
All right, the key word here is the word declared. Jesus, this is what Paul is saying if he were writing in English. And of course, that's, that's what we study in, that's what we read in. So I'll start there, but the meaning of what he said is deeper than what is obvious on the surface of the English translation that we're working from. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So Paul's point in English is the resurrection contained within itself as an event, a declaration of something unique about Jesus that cannot be declared about anyone else. But in the original text, and you understand that Paul was writing this in the Greek language, not in English, the word that's translated declared, and it's really a mistranslation. I get why they translated it this way, because it would just potentially be confusing for the reader had, he, had it been translated as Paul actually wrote it. But it's the job of Bible teachers to bring out these kind of details. The word declared, translated declare, is the Greek word horizo. You might remember me talking about this before. It's connected to our word still to this day, that has come down into English, horizon. And what Paul actually says is he uses it as a verb. So transliterating that into English, this is what is actually being said. Verse four, and Jesus was horizoned to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So let me ask you, what does a horizon signify in our understanding of the world around us. How many of you have ever looked out at the horizon? What is the horizon? It's a line that demarcates two things, the sky from the earth. That horizon is a separating, distinguishing line so that as you look out over the horizon, it's not all just blended together. You see the earth and you see the sky and you recognize they're two separate and distinct things that should not be blended together. You don't look out over the horizon and say, oh, there's the earth sky or there's the sky earth. You say, there's the sky, there's the earth and how beautiful is it? Jesus was horizon. What that means is he literally, God drew a line across all of humanity and all of humanity is on one side of the line, the lower side. And one person in all of human history is on the upper side of that line. Jesus was distinguished from all others, separated from all others in a spirit of holiness, a recognition that he alone has risen from the dead never to die again. Now the good news, and you understand this, this is, this is the great promise of the gospel because he has had that experience. And if you believe it from your heart, one day you will share in that same experience and you will be raised from the dead as he was. But up until this point in history and until the last day of history as we know it, when the Lord returns, he will be the unique and only one who has ever risen again from the dead, proving that Jesus, vindicating Jesus and his reputation as belonging to a category of one 
in all of humanity, everyone else, including you and me, in the other category of never having been raised from the dead and never will be until that day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the proofs that you've provided, the the vindicating evidences that you've provided in your word that Jesus, through his resurrection from the dead, as you powerfully raised him from the dead, is set apart in a category that belongs to no one else. I pray for your saving grace to be at work in every heart and in every mind that's here this morning to enable each one of us to believe that with all of our heart and so be saved. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Easter celebration with your family and friends today.